you were to think back over the past few days of your life and about all the decisions you made and thoughts that ran through your mind, how many of those thoughts and decisions came about because of your immediate circumstances? You know, one thing I've noticed about myself in recent months is that I am almost always ruled by my circumstances. The state of my heart and the frame of reference for the way that I view the world are almost always determined by whatever my current circumstances are. If I'm facing a very difficult work week, not gotten much sleep, haven't been spending much time in God's Word, then I'm much more prone to discouragement and despair. But, when I get off work on Friday, I don't have many weekend responsibilities, then my attitude is completely different. All the world is right. Nothing, it seems, can stand in my way. Everything I do is filled with fun and joy. Even the bad things that happen on those weekends, I can face them with, you know, ease. But when I'm able to look back on either the negative circumstances or the positive circumstances, I'm forced to conclude that in both instances, I'm being duped. I've bought into the lie of the enemy that that would have me believe that true pleasure and true joy can be found outside of God's eternal truth. I really start to believe that this world is all I've got, and if things aren't working out here, then I'm destined for a life of despair. Or, if things are working out here, and I've finally found what I've been looking for, Both extremes are false, and both must be rejected in favor of the unwavering truth of God's Word. Because in those moments of depression or despair, and in those moments of fleeting happiness and superficial joy, I am being controlled by my circumstances. And what I feel is not what is real. Now, Before you begin to think that this is some kind of self-help sermon uh, meant to equip us with more coping skills so that we'll be able to manage our emotions and stressful situations, let me assure you that this is much more than that. What we have in the Psalms are real-life expressions of real-life emotions brought about by real-life events in the lives of real people. We can all identify with the Psalms to one degree or another. And what we have in Psalm 13 is a foreshadowing of the work of the gospel that takes place in the human heart day after day, moment after moment. Because if you've been around Redeemer for any length of time, you've probably heard us say that we never move beyond the gospel. And hopefully we'll see what that means as we read Psalm 13. Let's read it together. The Psalm of David. How long, O Lord... Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, as we read, as we, as we think about this psalm this morning, um, a psalm that we're probably all familiar with, we've probably all read it many times. God, I pray that what happened in David's heart at this moment would happen to us. God, that we would, we would not be controlled by our circumstances, but that we would be people who are able to stand up and face any circumstance because we are trusting in the unwavering truth of your covenant and your promises and your word. God, you have not promised to remove difficult times from us. In fact, you have promised that they will come. And Lord, I feel woefully unprepared. So God, I pray that you would prepare Redeemer Church. You would prepare these people for suffering, for persecution, for hardship, for difficulty, for a life of toil and striving. And Lord, we would be able to face that not in despair and depression, but with great foundational joy and comfort because we hold firmly to your promises. Let that be true of us this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're just going to go right through the psalm. It's, it's pretty clear. If, you, if you're reading the ESV translation, you have two verses. The first two verses are the first section. The second two verses are the, are the second section. The third um, set of verses, five and six, are the, third, are the third section. It's pretty easy. It's laid out really simple. First, we're going to look at David's despair, verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So what's going on here? David presents five questions to God. The first one, how long, O Lord? And when I, when I read this, I, I'm brought back to... Um, when I was in basic training like 11 years ago for the military and I remember like we had this thing called FTX which is like the big deal like everything you do it's like you're training for your field training exercise at the end of basic training and so everything you do for like two months is building up to this and what it is (laughs) the FTX is basically you strap an 80 pound backpack to your back and you march 25 miles out into the woods you dig a hole you sleep there for five days then you march 25 miles back Um, that's basically what an ftx is Um, and you do some stuff out in the woods Um, none of that includes sleeping so it's basically five days of no sleep and then you you march back and i remember like distinctly the march there pretty much a piece of cake. I was, I was in pretty good shape. Um, you know, out in the woods, no big deal. But on the march home, I mean, I remember like the last five or six miles of that march. I mean, we were in Kentucky. There's lots of hills. They had names for these hills. Misery, heartbreak. Like, like seriously, they, were just, they had names for these. And I'm, I'm certain we were just going in circles because, I mean, that's what they do. They just run you in circles. Uh, but you don't know. You just follow the person in front of you. Um, but I remember, like, distinctly the last five or six miles just trudging up these hills. And at this point, like, I'm starting to fall behind. I mean, there's tons of people falling behind. But some people are, like, passing me. You know, I'm getting out of formation. I'm getting screamed at by 
you know, a drill sergeant, all kinds of stuff. But like, I could not go any faster. And I remember thinking, like, the pain was so severe. Like, my feet and my legs, I'd never had that kind of pain before. I ran cross country and track in high school. I was, I knew about, like, pain when I was running and, and walking. This was unlike anything I'd ever felt before. It was just constant pain. And there's darkness everywhere because we're marching in the middle of the night after no sleep. And I remember thinking, how long? How much longer is it? That's the only thing that I could think about was just show me. Like, I want to see a light up there. I want to see the end. How long, O oh Lord? And so when I read this, the first thing David says, he doesn't, quit. He, doesn't, he doesn't say, Lord, pay attention to me. Lord, consider me. Answer me. Lord, what's going on here? All he says is, how long? How long, O oh Lord? That's all he can muster How long? How long is this going to last? The physical and mental anguish in whatever situation he's encountering is so overwhelming in that moment that all David can say is, how long? It looks like God has forgotten about him. He says, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Now, when we read these things, this kind of stuff in these psalms, we have to remember that the psalms are not meant to be theological treatises, right? So when we read David writing, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? We don't read that and say, well, look, this means God forgets about us. This means God leaves us. Therefore, you can lose your salvation and God's covenant, God's promises are weak, so don't trust him, right? The end. That's not the point. Like, we can't read this like this, this is what David is like teaching us about who God is. Remember what I said before, the Psalms are real life expressions of real life emotions of real events that happen to real people. This is David just crying out in the emotion and feeling of his heart. He's saying, it looks like God has abandoned me. The circumstances surrounding me are so severe, it looks like God is hiding his face from me. In fact, we have many, many passages throughout the Bible that speak of God's covenant faithfulness. The fact that he will never Leave us. Isaiah 49 is just one example. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. God's response, Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God does not forget us. He will not forget us forever. Verse 2, David begins to turn inward for the answers. Look what he says. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? David, as we'll see later on, he begins to turn, toward, turn towards God. But here, in the, in the opening uh, moments of this, of this hardship, he turns inward. It's interesting that this is where he goes. This is a description of, of a person who is crying out to God, who feels abandoned by God. And what is the mark of one who is, feels abandoned by God? What do they do? They begin to turn inward. 
How long must I take counsel in my soul? Where should David be taking counsel? In God. But he's taking counsel in his soul. The world tells us that the answers to our deepest questions can be found inside of ourselves. Are you struggling to achieve, the world might ask? If only you could look inside and unlock that hidden potential. Are you plagued by your conscience because of unconfessed sin? If only you could see that you are really your own worst enemy. Are you struggling to forgive someone who has hurt you badly? Well, the real issue is you just need to forgive yourself. The current obsession with modern psychology is built upon a faulty premise that says that every problem you have can be solved from the inside. If you could just dig a little deeper and uncover some kind of cathartic uh, experience or, or repressed memories, if you could just shout out all your frustrations or cry for days or write out all your feelings on a piece of paper and then burn the paper, then maybe you'll find some relief. This is the kind of modern pop psychology that we're fed day after day after day. How to deal with hardships and struggles. And David is turning inward too. He's seeking counsel in his, in his soul. And where has it gotten him? Is it providing the answers to his deepest questions? When he looks inside his own soul, does he see the face of God? No. And neither will you. When we turn inside ourselves, when we begin to look at our own soul for life's deepest questions, we will return deeper in despair. Now why is that? Because no amount of positive self-talk, no amount of digging up repressed memories, and no coping mechanism can remove the fact that you were born with a wicked heart. And it must be made new. David turns inside. He turns inward. He looks to his soul for counsel. And then he says, My enemy, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? He feels like he's fighting a losing battle. His enemy, whoever it is, if it's a, if it's a real life, it was probably a real life enemy. It was probably someone who was trying to kill him. Right? I mean, he was the king. People were, trying to see, people were seeking his life all the time. Um, but even if it's not... He's feeling overcome by an enemy. His enemy is becoming victorious. And we all know that when we experience a certain level of despair in our lives, in just one area of our life, if we fail in one area of our life, it begins to cloud our entire perspective, doesn't it? And when you begin, when you see failure in your life, whether it be maybe academically or in a relationship or a failure, a moral failure perhaps, a falling into sin, um, and you begin to dwell on that and take counsel in your soul, everything else kind of just darkens, doesn't it? All of a sudden, the things that you used to enjoy, you don't really enjoy those as much. You don't find the kind of joy and pleasure in in the things that you once did. 
All of a sudden, what seemed like something temporary and fleeting has become commonplace. It clouds our worldview to the point that every aspect of our lives comes under the cloud of despair. The battle is over. The enemy is won. As, as I thought about this, I was reminded of a scene in Lord of the Rings. Um, I just finished reading Lord of the Rings um, just a couple weeks ago. And so I, I dug it out in, in, in the Two Towers uh, book. There's a scene where um, uh, the Battle of Helm's Deep, right? It's a huge battle. And you have King Theoden and all of his, his people there. And they're, they're gathered at Helm's Deep. And here comes the enemies of Isengard, right? Saruman's uh, orcs. And they're just beginning to just ransack this uh, uh, Helm's Deep. And this is what Theoden says. It is said that the Hornburg, which is the name of the fortress, it is said that the Hornburg has never fallen to assault, said Theoden. But now my heart is doubtful. The world changes, and all that once was strong now proves unsure. How shall any tower withstand such numbers and such reckless hate? Had I known that the strength of Isengard was grown so great, maybe I should not so rashly have ridden forth to meet it for all the arts of Gandalf. His counsel seems not so good now as it did under the morning sun. The end will not be long. So here's the king. King Theoden, and he's he's seeing, he's looking around, he is surrounded. There are just, he's overwhelmed, overcome with the enemy. And all of a sudden, all the world, he says, is not what it once was. Things are changing. And in fact, he even questions the wisdom of Gandalf. And if you know anything about Lord of the Rings, you don't question the wisdom of Gandalf, right? Um, but here's King Theoden, he's like, oh, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Gandalf's Gandalf's advice doesn't seem so good. Man, aren't we the same way? Right? We begin to see a failure in our lives or we encounter some kind of hardship and everything else in our lives just begins to darken. And all of a sudden, the wise counsel of God doesn't seem really that believable anymore. The, the battle is over. The enemy is won. That's what King Theoden was saying. And this is precisely what was pictured at the cross. The one chosen by God to deliver his people. The one the disciples thought would finally restore God's kingdom on earth is nailed to a cross of wood and put to death before the eyes of an entire city. And even Jesus himself manages to put into words his own despair and, uh, and abandonment right before he died. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The battle is over. The enemy is won. Some of you, perhaps, are in the same place as King David and King Theoden. Some of you are probably surrounded by darkness, even now, as you sit here. Perhaps it's darkness of your own sin. Perhaps you've been living your entire life trying to convince others that you can measure up to God's holy standard. Perhaps you've been living in disobedience and hidden sin for some time. Perhaps you have put forth extraordinary effort to keep your sin hidden and to keep others from seeing it because you're afraid of being found out and it's driving your soul into the very pit of despair. 
And no matter how clean and Christianly you look on the outside, deep down you know that your soul is filthy and lifeless. You've suffered under the weight of legalism for too long. Or, maybe you're overcome with some kind of trial. Maybe you've received some just life-shattering news in recent days. Or, and this is probably the case for most of us, perhaps just your current life situation has worn you down physically, emotionally, and spiritually to the point that you feel like God is a million miles away. And maybe you've lived in this state for so long that you've grown impatient and bitter towards God. I mean, when I read these opening two verses, you can sense a little bit of impatience here with with David, right? How long, oh Lord, how long? How long, how long, how long? Five times. He might be growing a little impatient. I mean, we are so prone to that. When you live day after day after day, working and working and toiling and striving, and the pressures of life are just, they just never seem to, to let up. In fact, they just continue to pile on and pile on. You have financial problems and your your kids are going crazy and you have school and, and all the, the, the just the pressures of life it really is easy to become impatient to grow bitter towards God I've been there man I've been there Spurgeon puts it this way and what if there be some impatience mingled therewith Is not this the more true a portrait of our own experience? It is not easy to prevent desire from degenerating into impatience. Oh, for grace that while we wait on God, we may be kept from indulging a murmuring spirit. Do everything without grumbling or complaining, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says, if you want to shine in this world, if you want to hold out the word of life, if you want to be different, do everything without complaining and grumbling. Man, (laughs) that is so true. But, we can't stop after the first two verses, right? We can never stop there. At that point, we are not far from the kingdom. When we, we begin to see our emptiness, we begin to see that our souls are filthy, that we cannot solve our own problems. We're, we're, almost, we're almost where we need to be, but we're not quite there. We can never stop there. Let's read verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David's desire. David begins to turn away from himself and towards God. Light up my eyes, he says. David acknowledges that the problem with him... Uh, with himself is that his spiritual eyes are darkened. He's not seeing things rightly. His worldview has been clouded over by his current circumstances. This is the opposite of what we saw in verse 2. 
Right? In verse 2, David says, I take counsel in my soul. How long do I have to take counsel in my soul? But here he says, forget that. I'm turning towards God. God, consider me. Answer me. Light up my eyes. He's looking outward to God as the one who can overcome his downcast soul. David knows that his perception can only be corrected by the divine work of God. The New Testament picks up on this. It's all over. You have Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. The Apostle Paul prays this. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This is his prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, and what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes this, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. David knows the answer to his deepest questions. The answer to, to facing whatever he is facing is outside of him. He needs a divine and supernatural light immediately imparted to the soul. And that's what he seeks in God. Light up my eyes. Don't let me sleep the sleep of death. He also says, verse 4, Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. Notice what, notice what he's, he is, uh, he's asking here. He's not asking that God remove his circumstances. He's not, even, he's not even asking that God would give him victory over this enemy. What he wants is the ability to stand firm. He says, I don't want to be shaken. I don't want my enemy to say I have prevailed over him. David is really after something internal, isn't he? He says, I don't want to be shaken. This word shaken is very is a very cool word. Um, it actually means... What does it mean? <laughs> I had it here. <laughs> um, well, it means basically slip. Here we go. Here it is. Yeah, shaken. It can also be translated totter or slip, right? Don't let me totter. Don't let me slip. Don't let me look like... I don't have something firm to hold on to. That's what he's really after. He's after, I think, it seems to me, he's after God's glory here. If David looks like he's tottering, if David looks like he's slipping, if David looks like he's shaken, what is that saying about God? Because people know that David's trusting in God, right? And if he is looking like he is being defeated and downcast and he's, his enemy is prevailing over him, what does that say about who God is? He's asking for strength to stand up under whatever hardship he is facing. Some of the other Psalms pick up on the same word. It says uh, in Psalm 38, For I said, Only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. Same word. Psalm 49 or 94, uh, When I thought my foot slips... Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. 
the issue for David is not that he would necessarily defeat his enemies, although that, that's part of it. Instead, he's longing for some stability of mind and heart. He does not want to be shaken. What he's really asking for is the strength to hope in God in the midst of his hardship. And that, my friends, is the mysterious way of the Christian life. I, I fear that we have such a simplistic view of the Christian life. I mean, I know I do. For, for so long, you know, if, if, if things are going really bad for me, whatever they might be, then I need to manipulate my circumstances and make them better, Right? And there's, we need to do that, right? I mean, we need to, we don't, you know, there's things that we can do in our lives to, to make things, we, if we plan ahead and think ahead, we'll, you know, make better use of our time and, and things like that. But there, when, when things outside of our control happen to us, there's a lot more going on there, right? And so I think that sometimes if we think, well, all of the, if all this bad stuff is happening to me, then God must be testing me or punishing me. Or I must be in some kind of sin. And if things are going really good for me, if I'm just feeling really good about some stuff, then man, God's glorious, you know? Like God, being a Christian is just great, right? But our, our lives, we can't just, it's not so simple, Right? It's not so simple. We have to come to terms with this dichotomy of the Christian life, which is, on the one hand, we've been called for hardship. We've been called to follow Christ. And that's going to mean persecution and suffering and temptation and taking up our cross daily and following Him. And, and men, I speak primarily to you, this means a lifetime of work. I mean that, work. Like, you are meant to provide for your family. That means you're going to have to work. Man, I don't. Most days when I wake up, I do not want to work. I don't want to get out of bed early. I, I don't. I don't want to go deal with these kids I have to deal with at work. I don't want. And then I think about getting another job. I'm like, I don't want to do that either. You know, like I don't. I don't I'm just lazy, right? It's just it's day, but it's, that's what we're called to do. Like life is hard. Right? It's a toiling. It's a striving. It's the curse. And that just begins to wear you down and wear you down and wear you down. But, the mysterious way of the Christian life is not that God just remove all that stuff and make it easy for us. It's that He empower us and strengthen us to be able to do that for His glory. And to do that with joy in our hearts and hope on our minds. And, and, and we long for the day where, where the work will no longer be toiled. We will be with Jesus. And we will serve Him for all eternity. And we will work in heaven. But it will be work that is not toilsome. In the new heaven and the new earth. We long for that day. God may or may not remove your difficult circumstances. But that's not His goal. His goal is to refine us in the furnace of affliction and burn away the dross that still remains so that when He returns, He's returning to a holy bride without spot or wrinkle. God is not interested in your comfort. He is not concerned that we be comfortable in this life. What He is concerned with is that you trust Him. He's concerned with your purity. 
He is concerned that, that when he returns, he is going to receive a bride that is pure and spotless without blemish. And that happens not when everything's, everything is good and we have everything that we need, but it happens in the furnace of affliction and suffering and persecution and day after day of toil. How many times can you actually say that your desires turn towards God in the midst of your hardship and suffering? We are so prone, I, I am so prone to feeling sorry for myself and seeking negative attention during times of suffering and hardship. We, we, I know, this is true of me. It's probably true of most of us. We kind of adopt this woe is me attitude, right? Oh, man, I'm just working so much. Just look at, I mean, I'm working like, you know, I always throw in some just exorbitant amount, you know, amount of, like number, like I'm working like 60 hours a week, you know, like uh, I, I just, I'm so busy and life is so hard and, and we just kind of get this woe is me, like look at all this, I'm suffering, ah, me, me, pay attention to me, me, I'm the me monster, right? Uh, you've seen that, that skit. It's pretty good. Um, but that's kind of what we do in those situations. Like we even turn, like this affliction and like toil and work, these are God's gifts to us to refine us and to make us more like Christ. And we take those, instead of like thanking Him for them, we actually turn them into self-worship, don't we? Oh, woe is me. Look at me. Pay attention. Aren't I just so spiritual? I'm suffering so much. <laughs> And many times, when I'm honest with myself, <laughs> this is crazy. I don't want difficult times to really go away. Because then, I wouldn't have anything to complain about, right? I mean, think about this. What, whatever, you know, day-to-day things you, um, like, just grate on you and just make you angry or or just bother you, like just the day-to-day temptations and, and hardships of life, just think about what if God really did just remove all that stuff? He just said, just took it all away. Like, I think about that sometimes and I'm like, man, what would I talk about? <laughs> you know, like, I wouldn't have anything to complain about. I wouldn't have anything to groan about and I wouldn't have any way to get negative attention from people. Um, Things would just really be good, you know. Um, and once again, it's just like we're just everything that we do. Like we take the good things that God gives us, we twist it around and turn into self-worship. What will it take for us to remember to return to God, to turn to God when we face seasons of despair and depression? Why does it seem so foreign to us? So David. He begins crying out to God, how long, O oh Lord, how long? But then he turns to God. Consider me. Answer me. Light up my eyes. But what are the benefits of seeking God? What, what does this result in? Okay, Caleb, I get this. Seek God, right? That sounds really Christian cliche language. Seek God when times are hard. Seek God. What does it mean? Come to verses 5 and 6. David's delight. 
but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David makes one more move at this point. He doesn't stop at just calling on God. He moves from his desire for God to actually taking delight in God. His heartfelt desire to hear from God turns to all-out trust and worship. His pleas for help and encouragement turn to hope and rejoicing. This is the proper place for such things. True worship is the overflow of our desires for God. It is impossible to truly worship God unless we delight in God. In fact, delight in God, taking delight in God, is the seed of true worship. And that delight will manifest itself in outward ways. Let's look at this word, uh, steadfast love. Verse 5, I've trusted in your steadfast love. That's the word hesed in Hebrew. It's a common word. We probably all heard it. Um, but it's a very important word in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's a term re- most of the time relating to God's covenant faithfulness towards his people. You think about David and the time that he lived. If David, before the cross, is able to look back and worship God because of his covenant faithfulness, how much more should we be able to? I mean, especially now. You know, we sang a couple Christmas songs. Uh, this is the Christmas season. I was going to preach a Christmas sermon, but I didn't. Um, but man, the Christmas season is especially a time where Christians are able to marvel at God's covenant-keeping faithfulness. I mean, you think back all the way to Genesis 3, the fall you have just the seed, just the very beginnings of a promise. As God puts these, as God curses the um, the serpent, He says, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel." In other words, there's going to come an offspring of the woman who's going to bruise the serpent's head. There's the beginning of this promise, and begins to grow and grow throughout the Old Testament. You have, you have leader after leader, God calling men up to lead his people. Then you have king after king, prophet after prophet, and they all begin to point ahead to this man, this, this well, the, the anointed one who is going to come someday and finally deliver God's people. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. You get to like the end of the Old Testament. It's like he, he's going to come. He's on his way. Bam. 400 years of silence. Nothing. But then, the shepherds in the field hear a promise. Then, Mary, the angel visits Mary. The angel visits Joseph. Here you have God's covenant-keeping faithfulness. God's covenant promises. He will never leave you. God has not forgotten you. 400 years of silence before God really comes to keep that covenant. 400 years. If you go all the way back to Genesis 3, you're talking 2,500 years. It took God 2,500 years. Let's 
steadfast love. God's covenant-keeping faithfulness towards His people. That's what David trusts in. He says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. There's three things I want to highlight. There's trust here in verse 5. There's rejoicing and then there's singing. To trust in God's steadfast love. What does that mean? What does it mean to trust someone? Well, it means to cast yourself on it. You know, you had that trust exercise, right? We've all done the, the, the trust fall. We all know what that is, right? You, someone behind you, you just fall flat backwards and you're basically putting you know, your life into their hands. They better be there to catch you, right? Uh, the trust fall, it's, it's what trusting is. Trusting in God. It's, it's casting yourself on God's mercy, on His goodness, on His covenant-keeping faithfulness. It's, it's a willingness to say, God, nothing, there's nothing good in me. I can't control this situation. You have put me here for a reason. I am trusting you. I'm casting myself on you. I'm going to trust your word and your promises. There's a rejoicing, David says. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Delighting in God is our true treasure and most valuable possession. How many other things do we rejoice in? How many other things do we value and seek for comfort in? Our hearts are so prone to find comfort and to rejoice in material possessions and personal relationships and life achievements and goals. But all of that can be stripped away in an instant. And then, what will you hold on to? David says, My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will trust in your steadfast love. And lastly, he says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So you see where David has come from. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? How long will my enemies triumph over me? And now he says, I will sing to the Lord. Why? He's remembering God's covenant faithfulness. God, is, God keeps His promise. God has dealt bountifully with Him. So, let me ask you, what are you rejoicing in? I mean, if, if things are going good for you right now, if, if you are not facing some kind of trial or hardship in your life, then it's coming. It's coming. And so, it's very important that, that, we, that we do what we can to prepare for those now. Because, like I said before, life is full of toil, of hardship. So what are you rejoicing in? I mean, I mean when, when you think about the things that, that really get you going, that, that really kind of get you in that state where, Everything is good, right? Oh, everything is good because, man, I don't have to work this weekend. I can just, just chill at home and kind of veg out. That's what gets me going. I just, I'm just like, oh, yes, the world is right. Um, I don't have to work. But, and, and yeah, okay, there's time for, for breaks. But that just, that, that comfort and that joy that I'm finding in that is a replacement for the comfort and joy that I need to be finding in Christ, Right? Are you being ruled by your circumstances? The title of this message, 
what you feel versus what is real. What we feel many times is not what is real. If you're like me and you're ruled by your circumstances and what you're feeling at any given point in time may not be what is real. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we, our attitudes and our actions have to be determined by our circumstances. Last thing David says is, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. C.S. Lewis, in his reflections on the Psalms, says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. So we're going to sing here in a little bit. And I just want to ask you, what are you singing? What is your treasure? What is it that dictates your attitude and your actions and the decisions that you make? Is it joy in the Lord? Is it joy in temporary, fleeting circumstances? And I also want to ask you, how do you view your own soul? I mean, have you bought into the lies that this world tells us that all of our deepest problems can be solved by just looking, turning inward? Because in this passage we have David turning outward, turning towards God, remembering that God is the one who lights up his eyes. And if you're here this morning, I want you to know that, that Christ, you know, the Christmas story, um, is about Jesus coming as a baby, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins, resurrecting from the grave so that those who have faith in him can have eternal life. That's how our eyes are enlightened. That's how God lights up our eyes. By faith in Christ. And so if you're here this morning, um, just hear that. Hear that if you want true delight, if you want a reason to rejoice and hope in God, man, it starts with Jesus. Let's sing. Let's pray first. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, that you are a covenant-keeping God. God, you are so you are faithful to keep your promises. God, I thank you for um, I thank you for just uh, giving us in the Psalms just such a true, real life picture of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Lord, even even before Christ came, Lord, we we have. Um, foreshadowing of the gospel here in Psalm 13, Lord, the, the, the way that that we are are encouraged to look outside of ourselves and to turn to you and to trust in your promises. I got to pray that Redeemer Church will be full of people that do that, God. That we would trust in what your Word says and not just in how we are feeling at any given moment. God, you are faithful, and we worship you, and I pray that um, as we sing now that you would be honored. In Christ's name, amen.